Hi guys, this is Vladimir Bosanets. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Potom Point podcast. 2020 has been incredibly disruptive for sports on all levels, from youth sports leagues to college athletics to professional sports and Olympics. Disruptions like these are also the starting point for change in sports, and we've already seen lots of innovation throughout the industry. To help us navigate this changing landscape, please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends and family about our show. Reach out with show ideas and tell us what you think of our work. Your feedback will help us be on point even more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pot on Point podcast, a podcast about sports, business, and the business of sports. My name is Mike McPhee. I'm one of your co-hosts coming in from the birthplace of the cheeseburger. What? First served, yes, sir, first served at the Humpty Dumpty (laughs) Drive-In. In 1935 in sunny Denver, Colorado. Hello, faithful listeners. This is Vladimir Bosanets coming in from Seattle, Washington, when in the first two weeks of January, we already had half the average rainfall for the full year. It's first two weeks, half the average. Okay, got to be a math major there, (laughs) Vlad. Holy cow. This week, we've got a really interesting guest on our show as we welcome Donald Dell to our podcast. Donald is a sports industry icon with an agency-centric career that helped to launch athletes and sports into the business stratosphere. We'll introduce him more formally in a bit, but we think you'll find his take on sports today to be very interesting. So get your popcorn ready, top up your beverage, and settle in for this week's Pot on Point Tilt. It's going to be a good one, Vlad. Let's go. All right, Mike, we're back uh, with this week. Uh, so um, kind of a big week. Last week we had the uh, NCAA football. No, this week. Sorry, this week the NCAA football um, playoffs are over. Yes, we did. And Alabama won again. <laughs> one, one again. Six six and 12 years. Jiminy. Yeah, kind Those of a run. guys are a machine, aren't they? They sure are. Ooh, kind of they a sure run. They sure are. Yeah, they, they only had the top quarterback, top receiver, top running back, yeah. plus probably top line and top offense ever. So, jeez. Funny, kind of funny along that lines and maybe maybe funny for Alabama and f- not funny for ev- everybody else in the in the world is um, I saw a headline uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago about they were comparing kind of Alabama to, you know, the other sports, you know, other, you know, like, you know, professional football and, you know, professional basketball and and this okay. one article specifically said, just just imagine this is what it looks like in NCAA football. I, imagine if your team basically could pick anybody from the first round, anybody from the second round, anybody from the third round, and then let sort of the rest of the you know the rest of the teams kind of take their pick at whoever is left over. That, that's sort of yeah. what. That's kind of how this Alabama system is continuing to dominate, right? Yeah, no question. As you compare it to the pros, right? The pros handicap the the winning right. teams typically, right? Where you've got salary cap issues where guys got to get paid for winning that ring. And then what else do we have? So we put salary cap and then you've got the, they have to pick at the end yep. of the draft, right? They, at the end of each round. But college has no such system, you know? We see, I mean, you see similar in basketball, like top of the top of the cream of the crop in yeah. basketball is five yeah. schools. It is, it, right? it is. I think Duke, Kentucky. I, I think, I think the only the only Nova. difference is that there there are more good teams, right? So there's more competition at right. the top than I would say. I mean, you know, college football looks like a pyramid. I mean, it's uh, basically the you know the top whatever six seven schools, and that's it. I think in basketball, it's more spread out between conferences. Fair so. 
Fair enough. And the final four shows that we get enough variety. That's in the right. Final four don't yeah. each year. It's very hard to yeah. get to the but, final four twice. That's it. It's but very, but very fo- hard. but football's turned into Alabama, Clemson, yeah. Ohio State. Boom. Put a put a circle around that group. Yeah. Then you got another smaller circle of guys that are kind of right there: Oklahoma, Georgia, Notre Dame, Texas A and M, Florida, who, whoever else in that next small group. And then that's it. And then everybody else. Um, it's it's really gotten to be pretty and pretty, and pretty repetitive. And you say they won the six out of the last twelve. How many how many times were they in the final? Uh, they lost at least one final. Okay, and they've been in the the playoffs like five of the seven years it's existed, or some number like that. Okay, so because so mo- their more first than, couple titles, mo- more than six, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah. Over the last twelve years, they've been in that. Would have well, they haven't had final four only the last four or yeah, five yeah. years. So right, right. But they're right there every year. Even when they don't make it, they go ten and two, right? <laughs> right and they just right, get, right. get knocked out by right. losing SEC title or whatever. They're incredible. They're, yeah, they're clearly it's, incredible. It's something else. Um, yeah. ratings. We talked about the yeah. ratings of the final game. Oh my. Yet yet one more version of ratings down, the lowest viewed title game since two thousand and five. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Arc, given the broader arc, it, it's not expected. Like if you had to make a prediction, I'd say that's that's what we would have expected. Um, but it doesn't. It's an interesting signal when we're seeing all these media rights deals get bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. But yet this title game was so far down. And that, that was a historic offense against a really good Ohio State team. Maybe the blowout did it. Maybe the blowouts would, would knock down the ratings a bit. I don't know. But wow. You don't think it's uh, uh, because Alabama's in the finals again? Fatigue potentially is what you're saying. Is like folks are Could just like, be. Oh, yeah, it's Alabama like Al- again. Alabama again, right? Yeah, um, Alabama again. Maybe, maybe that's what does it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but I tell you, they're they're gonna they they're losing a couple guys as we said. They're losing quarterback, receiver, running back, and and they're just gonna reload. Yeah, and interesting how dominant they've become, Vlad. Yeah, oh, that's that's something else. Well, good. Yeah, well, we'll keep our eyes on that one. Uh, so, Mike. So next up, we're going to have a discussion with Donald Dell uh, fo- that focuses broadly on the state of the sports industry today, and then we'll specifically focus a bit on the business of tennis. Uh, that's where Donald uh, comes from, essentially. Uh, his career in sports has been incredibly impactful. Following a tennis career that peaked with a top five ranking, Donald went on to found ProServe Sports Management Firm. Initially focused on tennis, the company would grow to become among the world's largest sports marketing athlete management, event production, and TV companies. Launched with initial clients such as Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith, ProServe has represented iconic sports stars including Michael Jordan, Pete Sampras, and Jimmy Connors, to name a few. Donald Dell has developed some of the most significant and longest-lasting partnerships between sponsors and sports properties. He has negotiated nearly $1 billion in sponsorships and endorsements throughout his illustrious career including the 2001 FedEx naming rights deal with the Washington Redskins, the largest in NFL history. He currently oversees and distributes many of Lagardere's sports media properties, including the French Open, the City Open, the Boston Marathon, and Ivy League football. Donald is currently an active philanthropist and an adjunct professor at the University of Virginia Law School. Let's welcome Donald to the show. This podcasting gig is a fun time for us, and we really appreciate both our loyal listeners and anybody that's new this week and just checking us out. One way you could help us out this year is to help us reach our goal of gaining more listeners. So if you like our work and our takes, it'd be great if you told a friend or two about our show. 
Maybe you could tell that old buddy that still thinks he's going to fit into his high school jersey. Or your barber that you see more than your family and friends. Or your friend that thinks college athletes should stay broke because that's how it's always been. Definitely tell that guy because we think we can convince him otherwise. And make sure you've subscribed so that you too can get your weekly Pot on Point fix. We appreciate all of you. Keep on listening, send us some feedback, and stay on point, my friends. Donald, good evening. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. I look forward to it. Yeah. Where where do we find you, Donald? Where where are you today? What have, what have you been up to? Well, I'm hiding out on my home in uh, Potomac, Maryland, suburb of Washington. It's about 20 miles to the White House from here. And uh, I literally uh, haven't been to the office. I haven't been to my office in Friendship Heights uh, since March, about March 15th. So everybody's, doing, okay. you know, we're all at home and, and, uh, I've been very, very lucky. I had my two uh, twin daughters and their husbands and two grandchildren running around in our backyard for six months. So that's been a tremendous pleasure. Excellent. Excellent. So in this, in this, you know, period, I imagine you'll be watching a lot of sports. Is that, is that uh, oh, yeah. part yeah. of your, uh, routine? Yeah, no, we watch a lot, a lot of television and mostly sports or politics, both. Needless to say, COVID has been extremely disruptive for for sports everywhere, right? But 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 also on the operations and side of the of of the leagues and the teams themselves, um, there's been a lot of impact on on revenues. Uh, tell us, you know, how how what's your perspective on this? How have you observed all of these changes happening? Well, I think, you know, it, it's been a, a tremendous uh, difference, particularly for the indoor sports. You know, the outdoor sports, is, it's a little bit easier, but golf and tennis outdoors have a, have a big advantage over, let's say, football and uh, basketball in particular. And um, as I see, I think it's going to take longer to come back to norm- normalcy than most people think, because now everybody's, you know, thinking, God, we got the vaccine, now we get vaccinated. We're all going to be hunky-dory by May. Well, I don't think that's going to happen, unfortunately, because yeah. the distribution is going to be a problem. Some people aren't going to want to take it at first. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hearing now that they're talking about – I was talking to somebody at the University of Virginia Law School about two hours ago where I teach, and uh, he was saying he didn't think they would have it in Charlottesville and ready to go until next September at the earliest wow. uh, for the school. And uh, that sort of surprised me. So I think – it's going to take a lot longer to come back. Uh, I have a lot of comments of what's been happening so far. I think that the NBA in particular, Adam Silver and, and those guys are really, really smart. They're always, Adam's always a little bit above the curve or beyond the curve. And, and he's figured out, you know, they had that whole playoff and they, not one of their players got sick. Uh, that's right. Now, that's, that's extraordinary because they were in that one bubble and the one place at Disney in, in Florida for like, I don't know, three months. And yeah. I know when they first started, they were very strict, very strict about people going out. You know, they couldn't leave the hotel and they find a couple of guys a lot. You could bring a guest or you could bring a coach. You could bring some people with you, very limited. But once they got through the first week or two, they never had a problem. I mean, they policed it very carefully and they had a great success with nobody getting sick, almost miraculously. Whereas I think the footballs had a lot of problems, but those are that's well known i mean outdoors is different and better really it should be but the football you there's so much more i I guess it's just as bad as basketball you're bumping into everybody they're tackling but there's a lot of problems with the with the sports world still still 
It is, it is, and we've Mike and I have talked about that in several of our of our shows. One of the things that we've been saying is that there has to be a bubble, but but the leagues have been resisting it. Um, now on the tennis side, there's been some success with it, and I know that there's been some regional tournaments where uh, they've instituted the bubble. Uh, obviously for 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 the U.S. Open, also there was a semi bubble, right? Yeah. Um, do do you think do you think from your perspective that we'll have to do this for another year? God, I hope not. I, but I think it'll be it'll be. I hope you know le- more than six more than six months. But I hope it's not as long as a year. But certainly, uh, it could easily be a year because if you really analyze it, the uh, the outdoor that golf has been wonderful because it's outdoors and sure. you, you can just yeah. limit the the crowd. I mean, I I just read yesterday the Masters uh, coming up in April is going to have a crowd, but they're going to be very. It's going to be limited. But it'll be outdoors, and they're going to have a few, uh, mostly members, and probably the members' guests. Uh, so they'll get away with that because it, it's so outdoors, and they can restrict who comes in. That's not the case for a lot of other sports, however. So right. it, it will be interesting. The Australian Open was pushed back till February the 8th. And what nobody realizes is the biggest problem they're really having is with the government of Australia we're worried about people traveling in. So they're going to let the players come in, but they're not going to let, if you or I wanted to fly in to watch the Australian Open, uh, we'd have to quarantine ourselves to come in there for, you know, maybe a week or 10 days. So that's going to cut down all the, the visiting tourism completely. And that's what the yeah. government wants. They don't want travel uh, at this time. So, you know, there's a lot of different problems that really move from country to country and sport to sport. Donald, as we've seen, uh, the stories are still coming out uh, around ratings, and and they come out. We just wrapped up the NFL regular season, and and we're into their 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 playoff sweet season here. Um, one of the things we're seeing is they're down across a lot of sports and a number of different drivers. But Vlad and I talk about the opportunities that have emerged. Can you speak to some of the innovations you've seen across the sports landscape that you might think would see some lasting impact on their sports? Well, I was trying to think, you know, of some of the new things. I mean. Uh, certainly in the, the NFL, which is the most popularly watched thing. I mean, th- I'm, I'm astounded that all the coaches and the players all have masks on them that when they're not playing, when they're on the sidelines. And I think uh, what's going to happen when, when the, the world of sport comes back, the two big things that you really have to worry about is safety and money. And I wrote that in an article, and both times the editor changed it and put money and safety. And I disagreed with that. I said, no, I really think yeah. the safety is going to be much more important than the money that you pay for the tickets. So I think uh, some of the innovations that, that, that are coming, one that's already done, they have the, these uh, people sitting in the stands that are cutouts. I mean, some of them have been very clever. Uh, I think also what they're trying to do now is inch and inch and inch where people can bring, you know, certain people, families of the players, particularly in collegiate basketball, you look around, there's not a lot of people, but the people that are there are family members of the players. So they're right. sort of getting a pass to come in, I suppose. Uh, but I think uh, when they come back to the, the real season, uh, they're going to have a hard time at first getting spectators to come back. I don't think it's going to be just push a switch and everyone says, well, we had the vaccine and everything's under control. Come on back. Let's go to a game. You know, I think that's going to be really a slow, gradual reoccurrence because people are not going to, they're not going to feel safe until they're sure until some time passes. So I think it'll be a slow process. Uh, I was talking to somebody today 
the French Open, for example, in Paris, and the government over there, when they had their event, said a thousand people, period, could come. And then the last day, the tournament kind of allowed about 10,000 people in there. There wasn't a thousand. And the government went, was furious over that. And now they've just said to them in May, the tournament's now coming up in May. And as of today, the government said, we're going to restrict you right now to 5,000 people a day, period. And we'll see if things change. So there are going to be a lot of other people making decisions besides leagues and owners. I mean, the public health officials are going to be making a lot of shots. They're going to be making a lot of calls as to what happens. Are you concerned, uh, you know, given given what's what's been going on, are you concerned that some of the leagues, some of the tournaments, you know, financially won't be able to, you know, make it through this period of time? And does that mean, you know, consolidation, like in any other business, essentially, right? Does, does that mean they're going to have to rethink things or maybe merge with some other initiatives? Any, any thoughts about that? I think that's going to be a, a, a real problem. The, the, the rich will get richer in the sense that the power five is, let's say, football and basketball. They will survive and they will do very well. But some of the division twos and division threes in, in sports may very well drop off, particularly in the major uh, revenue sports, because I don't think they're I think they're going to be hit hardest from that. Uh, for, for example, I think, you know, what, what you're seeing now in tennis you know, you have three different events. You have a, we have a grand slam and then you have this thousand series. Then you have the 500 series and then you have about 40, what they call two fifties. Well, the two fifties, yep. there are a lot of people that are, that are not coming back in the two fifties because they didn't have a lot of base, a lot of security, a lot of financial uh, money on the sponsors they relied on and on television. And so the television is moving more to the 500s and the thousands and the spectators aren't going to come back uh, right away. And the, the, the fan revenue is going to be way down. So you're going to see, at least in tennis, a lot of tournaments at 250, I think, are going to fall by the wayside in the next year. And I wonder if that's going to happen in golf or not, because the majors are going to be fine in golf. But I wonder if some of the smaller ones, because when you're based on a prize money event, big money, and it's television revenue and fan support, fan bet, uh, gate receipts, those are the two big revenues. You have sponsorship, that's true. But uh, th so the tournaments that can't rely on a fan base are going to drop out or going to certainly have to wait longer to come back across the sport. Interesting, interesting. What does this mean for income for the athletes? Do you think that that will go down also or is it going to be similar where, you know, the good, you know, the the good, really great ones are going to collect most of the income, most of the revenue, and some of the other ones, maybe not as much. Is that is that going to happen? Well, I think there, I think there are two different issues. If you have a team sport, let's take it in the pro levels, let's say the NBA or the NFL. If you're if you're in a team sport where you have contracts, the owners right now, I'm told, are losing literally uh, billions of dollars in both those sports as owners because they have got they have you know guaranteed contracts now. The contracts have been adjusted in those sports if there are fewer games. So right. fewer, I'm, I'm making up numbers, but if you had 80 games and suddenly you could only play 40 games, there's been an adjustment on some of those guaranteed contracts. But but still, the numbers it's not it hadn't been 50-50, it hadn't been you know dollar for dollar. The, the adjustment that the players' association in the major sports that I'm talking about, the pro sports, have been able to, to really protect the player salary, I would think about 65 to 75% in, in general, even though 
there've been fewer games. So the players have made out pretty darn well in the consideration of what's happening. Yeah. When those contracts run out uh, in those major sports, I think you're going to see a, a, a far lessening. I think that there'll be a tremendous negotiation struggle on the CBA between the players association and ownership naturally, because the owners are going to do something to try and get back lost revenue. And the most obvious one is lower player salaries. Now, yeah, that's had, their biggest expense. And yeah. if you had three superstars on one team, and that's really the, you know, think about uh, what, what the Nets have just done in New Jersey with Durant and uh, I, uh, uh, what's his name? Corey Ivan. Or Ir- Corey Ivan. And then uh, they just got uh, James Harden. I mean, that's unbelievable. Well, the, the, the superstars will be protected. I mean, they're, they're always going to get a lot more. They're not going to cut back because they're too valuable. But the, the guys, you know, between 8 and 12, I think will be hurt in a lot of these sports. I really do. Does that also mean that on the agency side, there might be less of a, you know, reliance maybe in the short term on some of that income and the agents are going to have to work harder to sort of negotiate other types of deals for their clients? Well, again, it depends on team sports versus individuals. In in the individuals, in sport, in uh, golf and tennis, you're talking, you know, maybe a, around a 10% commission, whereas in the pro leagues, you're at 4% or 3%, and the Players Association can reg- regulate that. In other words, let's take football. Uh, in the um, NFL, the Players Association a few years ago cut the percentage from 4% to 3% which means everybody's at 3% if you're an agent. Well, they could reduce that again to 2%. On the NBA side, uh, many of the really, really top-notch agents don't charge the full amount, ironically, uh, particularly in basketball, because it's so competitive. If I yeah. charge you 10%, somebody else is going to charge me, charge you 8% to try to get the client. When you go to NBA football and basketball, although they're, rela- they're regulated, by the Players Association, uh, more and more, I, I think the salaries are going to come down and the commissions are going to come down. It's just, uh, it's not going to be uh, permanent, but it may be for two or three years until the next CBA negotiation comes around. Donald, it, it's interesting. We, we're taking a turn towards uh, agencies. One of the things Vlad and I have talked about is seeing what agents' role will be on the college landscape as name, image, and likeness comes to bear here uh, in this next year and, and, and all the talks around uh, uh, amateurism and things. Can you speak to some of the dynamics maybe the agents will be working through as they potentially partner with college players around name, image, and likeness and those sponsorship-type deals? Well, I think, you know, that's really, that's the great question, I think, in in college sports today, what you just put your finger on. I think it's, uh, first of all, I'm very much in favor of the players being paid, the college players that are really pros. They're not amateur. The student athlete is a joke to use that word student athlete. That's just a PR term, in my opinion. Yeah, Uh, we're we're on the same page there, Donald. But but I think the trick is, how do you let it become more... um, financial, uh, more professional without it going crazy. I mean, how do you regulate it, but on a fair basis, you know, not, not something stupid. On the other hand, the NCAA, you can see what they're doing. I mean, what did they do when the, when the NIL came up and, and the courts were saying, yes, some of the players could do that and they could sell their own name image and likeness while in college. What's the first thing the NCAA does? They go out and hire you know, 10 great lobbyists in, in Washington 
and they want to put it over to you know, the Congress. The first thing they want to do is have Congress pass a law that would regulate it for the NCAA. Now, right. they, didn't, they didn't get that done and they're not there yet. But now they're trying to get, you know, in the court cases, they're trying to say, well, we really want Congress to legislate on some reasonable basis what the rules are. Well, that's just a perfect example. I mean, I think the NCA just abdicates uh, a lot of their authority. And yet I, I think it's very unfair to the players. I mean, they're going to do anything and everything to keep control of not just the revenue, but the players amount that they receive. And that's where the real push pull is. And uh, it's not that I'm just have made a, you know, a living being an agent and therefore I'm for the players, but it, the system right now is a joke. I mean, let's take the NCAA. I mean, they're, they're getting $9 billion in, in basketball revenue and the players, you know, can be, can be kicked out of a season or, or find the schools, you know, for a, $500 transgression of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. And every college has to hire an expert to know all the NCA regulations on recruiting. I mean, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and, and I think Mike and I, uh, observed this a couple of months ago, right? Uh, was it the, was it Kentucky, uh, Michael, or was it the University of Kansas that has a $1.2 million budget for sort of miscellaneous legal fees around NCA regulations? Oh, for sure. Then defending Bill Self's recruiting actions in partnership with Adidas, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. And you know, you know already uh, on hand. I mean, when I was very, very active in, in talent management, which I haven't done for a number of years. When I was doing the the uh, NBA in college, we did a lot in the ACC. I mean, you know, we had Ralph Sampson, we had James Worthy, Michael Jordan, Phil Ford. We had a lot of players in college, and it was always the college the the NCAA was, was always trying to police everything you did. And uh, I, I got very lucky when I started because I went to Coach Smith and also John Thompson. And I said, look, we won't recruit on your – I had 300 people working for me in 16 offices at ProServe. And I told both of them, look, we won't recruit on your campus. We won't write players. We won't, co we won't call them. We totally are hands off if at the end of the year – You'll just let me come meet whoever you select in your office with you and with you there and the player or the player's parents and coach Dean Smith and John Thompson. They both love that concept. Why? Yeah. Because it let them control their programs. It was great for me because then I got the first clear open shot at that. And, you know, for 14 years in the ACC, I mean, we got every player that mattered, that mattered out of North Carolina, for example. Yeah. And Georgetown, yeah, yeah. we did an awful lot. And, you know, we're still doing stuff with Georgetown today because of John Thompson, who was, you know, I managed John for two years before he went uh, at my request to, with David Falk. And, and John's been phenomenal and very loyal. And it, it's, it was a, a terrible, I mean, basketball a lot, the game and society lost a ton when we lost John Thompson. I mean, he yeah. was a wonderful force yeah. change and, and making it better, particularly for the African-American player. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Don, one of the things uh, that, that you know, COVID has, has also done, it's been a great disruptor of, of uh, sport, but also a great accelerator of trends. Are, are you noticing some, you know, trends that were bubbling underneath the surface that are now fully exposed and really transforming sports and maybe tennis, tennis in particular? 
Well, certainly in the tennis area, which I, I still am involved with, uh, two things are happening. Number one, the, the mid-level player, let's say between 100 and 250, uh, there were always, there was bubbling up, as you put it, that they always felt they weren't uh, able to make enough money to make a good living at that level. I'm, I'm just picking numbers between 100 and say 250 on the ATP sure. computer. So that was always a problem for the last five years. That was bubbling up. Now, suddenly you have a situation where some of the players in the top 100 are trying to start a separate new players association. Yeah. So those two things uh, are, gonna, are, are hitting the, the, the ATP right now, who has a new chairman, a new uh, committee that's really running it now. Uh, and so they've got their hands full with, with both those different problems. And, and with, with so much tennis, which was stopped for you know six months, nobody could play anywhere, literally, except for a few exhibitions that they played. Uh, it's now picking up again. The USTA, I thought, did a very good job taking on the U.S. Open in September. They didn't make any money. They lost a ton of money. But the players were able to compete, and they, they made a living. But again, that was only the top 100 players. Sure. You didn't see somebody rank, you know, 212 that could play there. That, that, that just wasn't going to happen. So where are we heading? That's really the question as we come out of the pandemic. Where are we where are we heading, in my opinion, with those two things, as you put it, Vlad, so well, bubbling up? There's been under the under the surface. One, uh, uh, as you know, Djokovic and, and Papasil, they've started their own professional association, which they say is still a part of the division of the ATP Tour. Uh, my own feeling is, which will kind of surprise you, I think that's a big mistake for the players. Yeah, tell us about that. Um, that 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 made some noise, not some noise, but some some news last year. And uh, obviously, Djokovic being sort of the number one, really put himself out there. I think some of his other you know peers kind of backed away a little bit, but he's probably the most prominent player pushing for it. Well, he was number one. You know, he was the number one player in the world at the time. He was the chairman of what they call the Players Council. Right. And right. he resigned from that with several other about four people resigned from that and said, "We want to start our own." Players Association called the Professional Tennis Players Association, PTPA. And uh, I think that got a little momentum for about a month after the Open. They announced on a Saturday at the U.S. Open. But I think that's really sort of quieted down because basically, uh, in my opinion, if you if you went back to just a pro, so, a pro player association, no tournaments involved. Right now, the ATP Tour, which people don't, mostly understand it's a it's a partnership between tournaments and players that's the atp tour board yep. and it was it was modified it was modeled really after the pga it, it copied the pga when hamilton jordan came in and took over uh, jack kramer and i started the atp in 1972 we founded it and it was a players only union there were no tournaments and then in 89 there was a big fight and jordan was the executive director had replaced jack and others. And he came up with the idea, let's do a tour. Let's take a, and, and make our own events, but we'll form a partnership with the tournament directors who, who run the events. And he was very successful. And the ATP came on very strongly, very quickly. And that started the ATP tour, which again is a partnership. There are three representatives on a board from the tournaments, three representatives from players, from the player council that, that uh, Djokovic was the president of. Yep. And there's a casting vote in the chairman, the CEO, seven votes. And so looking at it 
from a long background historically, I think the players have done very, very well in that formula because they're winning, in my judgment, maybe 70, 75 percent of the votes because the people sitting on the tour board, many of them over the years, have, have owned or promoted tournaments. Well, guess what? They, they don't want to enrage the players because they want them to play their tournaments. So there's a conflict there. And what's happened, in my opinion, and I don't think some of the players would agree, they feel that, that I feel they've been winning 75% of all the fights. And they probably feel that they don't have as much direct input as a player because there is a system now, there is a process, and there's a hell of a lot of people that are running around the world being paid to called, you know, the ATP tour. Yeah. You know, so it's a little different. You really got to understand that, but I think it would be a mistake for a new players association to get so strong that it's split up and, and got rid of the ATP tour board, because what would happen in my opinion, given a month, if it was a players only, the tournaments would go out and have a tournament directors association. And then you'd have every five years, you'd have a negotiation for like a CBA to avoid antitrust in America. Right. And I, for one, really believe if you had all the tournaments together who are making the market for, let's pick a number, $500 million, and you had all the players that play in the market, it's like the owners in the, in the NBA and the NFL, you know, if you're putting up the money, you're going to have a lot more say, you know, it's the golden rule. Yeah. Who gives yeah. the gold rules. And so right. I think players are a little short-sighted in thinking a players-only union would be more successful. I, I really believe the ATP Tour as a partnership uh, is stronger and, and, and really because the tournaments all feel they have a, a place in it and they have a stake in it. So they're not fighting you. They're, they're trying to work together. But one of the problems, if you thought about it, there's a conflict to start with. All tournaments want more players and less prize money. And all players want more playing and more prize money. I mean, less tournaments, but higher prices. So there's a, a lot of push-pull by the two positions in a partnership like that. To, to be a little bit crass about it, I mean, is it, is it all really about money? Um, is that what it boils down to? I mean, even though there's some you know, demands that they're negotiating over or trying to negotiate over, but at the end of the day, is, is the dollar kind of what, no, what's... You know, Vlad, that's a really great question because... I, from a player point of view, it's all about money. From the tournaments and the ATP administrative board, it's more than just money is very, very important. But they're trying to build a bigger sport. They're trying to build more television. They're trying to build more avenues to get on the tour, more points, more uh, a competitive tour board. The ATP computer is a great PR vehicle that Kramer set up years ago. And so I think from the player point of view, they would – they would deny that, but it really is all about more money for more players. And that raises a different question, one that uh, I'm sort of fascinated with. Jack Kramer used to say years ago, Kramer ran the ATP tour, uh, the ATP tour, it's a players association from 72 to 80 for eight years. I was his general counsel. He worked for a dollar a year, never took a dime. I worked for a dollar a year because of that. that. And, and so... We, Jack was adamant that all the money should go into prize money and get the players to play for more, yeah. but losers didn't, didn't make as much. And he used to ask the question of the players in the annual meetings. He would say, how many people do you think, how many players are there 
that should make a good living out of the out of the tour? Is it a hundred? Is it five hundred? Is it a thousand? At what level should the player, if he doesn't make it, should go to work in a different job or become a, a, a teaching pro or you know something else related to the sport? And where was the cutoff point? And he used to, you know, he used to ask that question all the time in the in the meetings when we'd have arguments about prize money and dates of schedule and television money. And the ATP tour now is having that 10 times more now because it's 10 times bigger and it's global. But when we started, I remember in these board meetings, people would say, well, you know, we got to do what golf does. And we'd say, wait a minute, we're, we're, golf's been ahead 10, 10 years ahead of us. They have a hell of a lot more money out there from yeah. the sponsors. Yeah. I mean, if a, if a, a thousand series is 5 million, the tour on the PGA is 10 or 12 million for a comparable event. So there's a lot of questions, but the issue is how many people should make a full-time living out of playing pro tennis? And where do you, where do you set that? You set it at 85, you set it at 112, you set it at 200. The players will tell you, yo, well, you know, we're the lifeblood. You got to do 250. Okay. If you do 50, that 250, that's one thing. But if you inch up to 300 or 350 or 400, there's just not that much money to go around at the lower levels, the challenge, yeah. what they call the challenge yeah. term. And the guy who's ranked, you know, 220 doesn't want to hear that because he's trying to become <laughs> number 50, but he can't afford to do some of the things he says, you know, I can't have a coach. I can't travel as well. I don't live first class. Yeah. Well, Jack had a simple answer for that, which the players don't want to hear. Play better. <laughs> that's something i used to hear from coach thompson gotta gotta win son <laughs> yeah win more exactly you know let's don't talk let's win yeah donald there's there's an interesting dynamic that you've just surfaced i want to double down on and that's sure. uh, the the business of the tournaments and the tour they're going to want more more tournaments being played because of the business opportunities that are out there and growing the game there's a number of sports across the globe. If we set aside what COVID did to schedules and schedule compression and shifting, but there's a number of sports across the globe where the velocity of games has increased. So there's soccer's being played twice a week on the big stage. You know, basketball's four to five times a week and and tennis is is a global year-round sport. And our athletes though are getting a lot smarter. Teams are getting smarter about uh, load management about prioritizing when they play. We heard from Tiger 10 years ago that he wants to play grand slams. He prioritizes those and he builds up to those. What's your, what's your take on this notion of athletes and teams and, and load management and prioritizing when their athletes are, are, are ready to play? Well, let's, let's take an example. And, and I think it's in a lot of sports, but certainly in golf and tennis, individual sports, versus team contracts and team sports. If you're Roger Federer or if you're Djokovic, you're going to really pace yourself, Nadal. You're going to, that's why they've been so dominant. They're not going to play 40 weeks a year. They're going to probably play, you know, maybe 28, 30 weeks maximum. But they're going to pick their schedule around two things. They're, they're not worried about the money at all because they're so dominant in the game, their endorsements and, and, and revenue off the court is substantial. Uh, I mean, people don't realize if you're ranked one, two, or three, or four, most of these endorsement contracts have bonuses. And yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you could be a bonus where you rank one, and your bonus would be $10 million in these. In, I'm, I'm talking about major endorsement contracts for the top 
the very, very top players in tennis. And people don't, the public doesn't really quite understand the enormity of something. So when a guy says, I'm not going to be able to play the French because I don't like the surface and I don't play well on clay, he's going to lose some points and that's going to affect his ranking. And the bonuses are based on year-end ranking. So these, the top players really have gotten smarter and smarter in scheduling. It's all about how they schedule, what events. Yep. Whereas the players from, let's say, 30 to 100, they're going to play 45 weeks if they, if they can. If they, if they can, the problem is they're going to get injured. They, you know, a lot of particularly uh, these different sports where they're playing so much, you know, a tennis player is going to play 45, 50 weeks. Is going to get, he's going to be injured. There's no chance over a three- or four-year period that he's not going to have injuries. So now the question is picking your schedule, uh, picking the surface you play better on, the best on, and, and what is your goal? Are you trying to win a Grand Slam title or are you trying to make $150,000 to live on? It, it just depends on where you are in the picking, you know, in, in the robot list of people, where you are, and what you're trying to do financially. The guy who's ranked 50 is trying to move up and he's trying to make a lot more money and get into the top 10. The guy in the top 10 is trying to protect his body and his results and his ranking. So he's going to be very selective where he plays or how many tournaments he plays. And I suspect that's almost the same in golf uh, because it's an individual deal. And if somebody pulls a muscle or hurts his back or hurts his arm in, go in golf, he's going to be out for a while and he's going to suffer a lot of loss in dollars at the big level. Don, uh, We've talked about how uh, there's been disruption in sport and also innovation. There's been a couple of things that have come up in the last sort of six months. Um, there's a there there's a coach and a former player, Patrick Muratoglu. Uh, he has his ultimate tennis show, showdown, which he launched in um, France, and then uh, UTR, Ultimate Tennis Ranking, folks, uh, an, you know, announced a tour also. Uh, your thoughts on sort of what what this means for the for the game of uh, tennis in general, and and whether this is this is good. I think it was very good at the time they did it because nobody was playing, and they set up a tour on a limited basis. You know, they might have eight or twelve or sixteen players in a tournament uh, on a limited basis back in April, May, and June when nobody there was no tour. Uh, but I think the tour today, you got to remember, there's four slams. It's 11 500s, they're 38 250. So you, you've really already got about 45 weeks of the year right. filled. And the biggest problem is getting a date on the calendar. So I, I think these smaller tours that you've set up, and it's like World Team Tennis, you know, it's a three week event after uh, Wimbledon. So I mean, I think they're very, very good, but for the lower players. And, and the, the problem is can they, can they carry themselves with the sponsors? If they're only having, you know, two, the rank 200 to 250 playing in it, uh, I think it's, don't misunderstand me. I think the players were ecstatically happy they had something to do. And a lot of the very good players played in them. But now when the tour gets back to its normal schedule with big prize money event, Grand Slam events televised everywhere, the best players are not going to be playing in those two types of events. They're going to be playing the tour. 
That's right. Yeah, and we've and we've noticed that. Um, but one of the things that we've also noticed is there's some innovation here. So the ultimate tennis showdown is really kind of trying to change the sport, if you will. You know, the way yeah. that they rank and sort of score and kind of how they interact with the with the players. The ultimate tennis ranking, I think, has its own ranking that sort of. You know, I guess a lot of colleges use it, right? Um, do, do you see do you see this sort of um, legacy kind of ATP tennis adopting some of these things because they they have to just change is coming? Oh, I think the the URL the the hand capping hand capping system they're trying to develop would be fab fabulous if you if you could develop something. Right now, they're trying to pair up players at the same level, but the greatest single thing about golf is the handicap system. Anybody can play with anybody if you use the handicap in golf. Right. You don't right. have that in tennis because in golf, you're playing the, the course, you're playing yourself, your own score. In tennis, you're playing the other guy. So you're trying to, to beat him, as it were. So if you can find a handicap system where different players at level could play together, for example, obvious ones, for example, you only get one serve or you start off at love 15. But tennis is much, much harder to handicap in that regard than saying you and I are playing golf and you're much better than I. And so you say, I'll give you eight strokes, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's so much easier to do it in golf. Uh, and in tennis, it's not as easy because the level of the two players is what matters. And then you've got to fall. So if I'm much better than you are you, in the handicap system, we've got to find a way to give you a, a, maybe it's two bounces. Maybe it's the first serve only one serve. Maybe, you know, you got a handicap. But then people think, well, that's not really tennis. I mean, right, right. that's an exhibition with new rules. On the other hand, remember, we got the um, we got the tiebreaker because a guy in Newport named Jimmy Van Allen started out and thought there was too much serving, serving, serving on grass. This was years ago. So he came up with a nine-point tiebreaker. And at 4-4, the guy who won that serve, that point, won the set, 5-4. And then the players, you know, rightfully complain and say, well, that's really unfair. You spin the who serves first on the nine points, you spin it, and he, he called it sudden death. So if you and I are playing, we got to four, four all, whoever won that ninth point won the set. And then the players objected because when you spun it, who got the first serve, served that extra right. point. Right. So then they got together and they came up with a 12-point tiebreaker where it rotates, but you got to win by two, and once you get to six all, then it evens out. You got to win two points in a row. You got to be at eight, six or nine, seven or 12, 10 or whatever it is before you win the set. So that's been a great innovation. The, the tiebreaker uh, for tennis has been a fabulous in innovation. And another one, which I think is, has been very good. Although if they, depending on what they do on the schedule and, and whether they continue with three out of five set matches versus two out of three set matches is the player challenge on the scoring. I mean, that gets the player into it, you know, and they're using more and more. They're going to use lines, automatic, no linesmen, but you know, automatic technology on the line calling. That's been a tremendous improvement in the sport, in my mind. Yeah, and uh, it's that's going to grow so many things coming out of that. There's no more fights over line charges with you know the they, they and the player challenge. You know how exciting it is when a guy cha challenges, goes up on the board, and he wins the challenge. You know they have yeah. to replay it. I mean. It's it's crazy, but I think it's really improved the sport from a spectator point of view. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'd like to wrap it up with a couple of questions around tennis in America. 
and sort of your your kind of view on the you know future of the sport here here in the U.S. Do you think that the U.S. can compete globally, and does the sport need to change within to broaden its appeal into the new demographics and sort of new opportunities for it to be more more successful? First of all, a couple of things people don't totally realize when they say, "What's wrong with American tennis? We don't have enough." Superstars. I saw the list the other day uh, of the top twenty rec- ranked American uh, t- top twenty ranked players globally on the ATP. Not one of them was an American. So you read that and you think, "What's wrong with American tennis? We're the we're the new stars." Well, a couple things have happened. First of all, fifty years ago, in the sixties and seventies, Australia, Britain, America, France, Spain. Those five countries dominated tennis. With the growth of the ATP tour and the ATP computer ranking, a young guy in, in Slovakia or Serbia, you know, the, the, the Eastern Europeans are using tennis and golf as a vehicle of getting out of their countries. Sure. It's, yeah. like, it's like the American, African-American bat, uh, boxers. They used to use boxing to improve their society and improve their life in America. That's exactly what's happened. So because the computer is global, the game is global, the the top five powerhouses in tennis are no longer those five countries, particularly Australia and, and America. So I don't think it's a question of what's wrong with American tennis. The sport has become so global and it's outgrown a particular place in America. And the real problem with American tennis is how do you attract the six, eight, or 10-year-old to pick up tennis as opposed to football, basketball, baseball, hockey, whatever it is? You're competing for that young athlete. Now flip it. Why are the women so successful? Because tennis in women is the highest paying sport of any pro sport in women's tennis. So a woman who's eight or a kid who's eight or 10 and her parents say, she's phenomenal. She's a great athlete. Let's play tennis. Yeah. I mean, the Russians, yeah. Russians all fly over and move to Florida when their kids <laughs> right. are four or five and six, mostly women. Where did Sharapova come from? You know, there's so many good Russian players and Eastern European players. Well, the men, are, it's not as predominant, but in America, we've got to find, and this is where the USTA has sadly in my judgment, failed, they have got to find a big enough incentive system that when we're going after for tennis, the six or eight-year-old or 10-year-old, why does that 10-year-old think of Michael Jordan? He has a poster in his bedroom about Michael Jordan or, you know, Aaron, LeBron James or Aaron Rodgers or, you know, one of the superstars in the, the major four sports. And so, it's not enough just to say, well, gee, in, in the tennis world, you could travel and it's an individual sport, you know, because they're thinking more of team sports and they have big salaries and big contracts. Sure. So yep. it's a really difficult uh, push for sis, uh, system that you have to overcome. You've got to attract and recruit competitively with the eight and 10 year old athlete in America if you want to improve American tennis. Yeah. Do you think part of that is also because of broad, broadcasting and just those athletes that you named are on TV more and that's that's who they see, you know, during the week? Well, that's a wonderful point because if you looked at tennis globally, tennis all over the world, except for America, is normally two or three in television in different countries. 
Soccer is king outside of America. Right. Soccer's won on television. Some countries, Italy, Hong Kong, uh, Spain, occasionally basketball is number two and tennis would be three. I'm talking about ratings on television. Yep, yep. Tennis is two or three in every country in the world. Now you go to America and tennis is, I don't know, 10, 11, or 12. So you're not getting the same name value. And, and if you had, if tennis was two in America, everybody, uh, you know, would much more easy play it because it's cheaper. You can get many, many courts in the inner city. Golf is killed because it's very expensive. How many yeah. golf, how many golf courses do you think there are in downtown uh, Chicago, New York, Boston? You know, there are no, there are no down in Washington, DC. We have one public uh, golf course. That's, that's outrageous. So the sport can't grow to the average, let's say African-American or inner city athlete. Yep. Because yep. there's nowhere to play. And so golf is really hindered. Tennis is better than that because we have a lot of good inner city tennis programs around the country. But again, they're all watching television and they all want to be LeBron or they all want to be Aaron Rodgers or one of the superstars in those other sports or, you know, the Wayne Gretzky's in soccer of, uh, in hockey of old. Yeah. I mean, that's who they, they see all the time on television in America. Yeah. 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 So that's, what's killing you. It's the lack of tennis at the top level in television on a ranking basis hurts your, uh, your competitive nature and getting you good young stars. Yeah, makes sense. So, Don, is our final question here. Um, this is, you know, a bit of a personal question. If you're looking to carve out some time to watch some sports, what do you watch? What's your favorite thing to turn on? Well, I'm, you know, I must confess that that I love to watch the basketball because I was very involved for a long time, uh, and I play. I watch a lot of the NFL uh, because of all the the betting and all the different pools and everything that are involved with the NFL. I think it's it's exciting, and I and I love still to watch tennis too. I think uh, a four and a half hour match is awfully long. There are very <laughs> yeah. few people are going to sit there until, you know, you might watch it at the beginning, then you might come in the last set and watch it. But the length of these matches, I mean, when we played, you know, it was all on grass. There was only one tournament in the world was on clay. All the slams were on grass. People have totally forgotten that. So if you had a rally of 12 hits or so on in, in the old days when I played, that was a marathon. You, you, I mean, to have 25 hits might happen one time in a match. Today, those rallies are phenomenal. And yeah. what you've learned is the athletes that play four and a half, five-hour matches in the hot sun, I mean, the, 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 the phenomenal, how the physicality of these players, I mean, a Djokovic is a phenomenal specimen as an athlete. And, uh, but so are the other team sports. But, you know, in tennis, and this is the great beauty and the challenge of the sport, you can't call timeout. You're out there by yourself. <laughs> if you're playing lousy, you can't say, hey, wait a minute, coach, substitute my yeah, leg. Okay. I just served a double fall. Can't we bring somebody else in? That's the greatness of the sport. But, man, for a television audience, it's very hard to maintain interest for four and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. even for three hours. Yeah. You yeah. Know, three hours. I mean, uh, that's I, I broadcast Wimbledon uh, on BBC and then on NBC for five years at Wimbledon. And you could see great matches, but on grass, you didn't have four and a half hour matches except once or twice during the whole tournament. If you couldn't break serve, well, now there's a tiebreaker. So you're going to end up ending right. on certain times. So it's yeah. much better for television. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, Don, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and honor to chat with you. Thank you for taking the time and uh, great to hear from you. Thank you. Well, I've really enjoyed it. I hope I haven't wandered off too much from your questions, but I've it's been great. We appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, Vlad, that, that was a really cool chat with Donald. Uh, just learned a lot. And, and man, he's, he's, he's had a really, really interesting career and worked with a lot of fun things. Yeah, incredible. And, uh, you know, I have to say, uh, he's super sharp. Uh, I mean, he's in his 80s. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he's healthy and doing great. Yeah, that vibrancy was cool. I'd say he was on point, Vlad. He was <laughs> yes. definitely on point. <laughs> 100% on point. Indeed. So you've got us for Come On Man this week. I got a Come On Man for you, Mike. This one is called The Trip. Remember a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, when we focused uh, a little bit uh, on uh, that pigeon racing uh, auction? Oh, brother. <laughs> we call the section, oh, brother. So apparently, another racing pigeon from Oregon made its way <laughs> to Australia. Have you heard this? <laughs> Have I heard it? No, sorry. Haven't heard of this. <laughs> I don't Sorry. know if now because we covered that story and I looked it up on the internet one time, now I'm getting bombarded by by Facebook or somebody with these pigeon racing stories. <laughs> apparently a pigeon made it on a on a on a on a on a boat uh, across the Pacific, landed in Australia, and then I don't know how they figured out that this was a pigeon from California. I think it had sorry, from Oregon. It had like a little marker on its on its leg and they figured out that it was a racing pigeon. What? And now listen to this. Because the pigeon came from another country, the country of Australia was really concerned about an avian epidemic of some sort. So they were going to put the poor pigeon down. The pigeon's name was Joe for Joe Biden. So they were going to put Joe down. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not joking. This is for real. This is creative writing. Is, is this, this is, your, no, your, this your is kid's not, creative writing this assignment? This is not creative writing. This is... Honest to God, this was reported. You can look this up, people. There is a story about this. So Joe the uh, Pigeon in Australia looks like they're going to spare him. They're not going to kill him. I don't know uh, who intervened. Uh, but yes. Joe the Racing Pigeon is probably on his way back to Oregon at some point, somehow. And, okay. um, you know, hopefully he'll have another couple of years of uh, racing there. You know, brother... I <laughs> We, we've evolved. We've we got, come on, man, here. We got, oh, brother. And and you said the word intervene. I think we need an intervention for your news feed. Your news feed needs an intervention. Perhaps. Whew. Perhaps. Anyway. All right. So, Good show, Vlad. I thought, I thought that would wrap it up. That would wrap it up. So thank yes, you for indeed. joining us today. We know that you listen to podcasts, so we know that you know where that subscribe button is. So click it and forget it, and our next show will automatically get to your device next time we publish. Boom, done. Yeah, we love the feedback, so tell us what you think. Tell your friends and family about us. Our contact information is in the show notes. The more we hear from you, the more we can be on point. Mike, good game. Good game. See you next week. <laughs>